This is Professor Allen, and welcome to the Quarter Bin. In every episode of this podcast, I will summarize, criticize, discuss, and review a single issue from my comic collection, which I will select at random based on specific genres, at least for this year. Any book that fits that genre in my comic book collection is eligible, as long as I paid no more than 25 cents for it. Was the issue worth 25 cents? Was it a bargain at 25 cents? Or was it still overpriced? Stay tuned and find out. For this 178th episode of the Quarterbin Podcast, in celebration of January as hashtag Sci-Fi Comics Month, we are looking at Eternity Smith, number three from Hero Comics, cover dated November 1987. But first, a little feedback. Billy D. from Star Rocket Radio wrote in, Bravo, Professor. Good episode as usual. This comic sounds like a great bargain for the original cover price, let alone two bits. Thank the heavens that first plague story is only a comic book story. Oh, wait. Anyways, Merry Christmas and Happy New Year to you and yours. Thank you, Billy. Hope you had a wonderful Pennsylvania holiday season. David Gutierrez, former podcaster on the former Ultraverse Podcast Former Network, referenced the episode with this comment. Not world's finest, world's thriftiest. Adding the computational comment, that's a nickel apiece. Yes, it was, David. Yes, it was. And sir, Dr. Ange was pleased that we got to this comic. Now we're talking. I was a big fan of the dollar comic format, as it gave me the biggest bang for the literal buck. Superman Family was always a purchase if I saw it and had the funds. Also love the dollar comic Unexpected. World's Finest and Adventure ran neck and neck for third. Loved the Superman-Batman stuff. Kryptonian lycanthropy? And also got Creeper and Don Newton on Shazam and Hawkman. In particular, Newton's take on the Marvels is wonderful. I'd wish they'd collect that. I also loved Adventure because he got Flash, Wonder Woman, Aquaman, and Dead Man, as well as some JSA. Tremendous. I don't have a lot to say about these particular stories other than the virus one is fascinating given current times. I found it odd that strays needed to be brought into Metropolis to add to the spread. And also, the sun is Superman's trash can. (laughs) Thank you, Ange, for those comments. I love the Superman slash the sun relationship in this era. And yes, these dollar comics were great deals, are great deals even to this day, especially if you can get one for a buck or even less. Sir Luke said he was eager to hear my take on the comic. I have a big run of these world's finest due to the Hawkman strip. Of course you do, Luke. Of course you do. And. From Podcasting's Michael Bailey, Professor Allen, your timing is perfect this time out. 
as you release this mere days before the comic celebrates its 40th birthday. I don't know about math. Surely 1981 couldn't have been 40 years ago. Like 10? Sure. 20? That's pushing it, but 40? Stares in existential dread. Anyway, despite the fact that I didn't vote for this issue, I enjoyed your coverage both in content and approach. Your commentary on the value of an anthology book brought to mind a sports metaphor. Your average comic is a football game. You have 12 issues in a year, call it a season, and every issue has to count towards the overall success of the book. Four bad stories and things start to look bad. But anthologies are baseball games. You have more stories in a year or seasons. You have more chances to keep readers around. People, in general, will keep reading if there's at least one or two stories that are good. The bad ones just drive down the stats. Unfortunately, comics, at least the day-to-day physical media side, have evolved to the point where anthology, comics, that model just doesn't work. I think this has to do with the nightmare of editorial coordination. But also, I don't think the contemporary audience is trained to want an anthology. The big guns in publishing are working from a weird playbook that seems more scattershot in terms of trying to appeal to a larger audience. This is how you have books based on adaptations mixed with the next generation of heroes, at least in DC's case. But I could be wrong, as I am out of the weekly grind. As ever, a fun episode with some on-point comedy about the plot in the Superman-Batman story. This is another way you and I see eye to eye. I'm totally okay with Superman and Batman being colleagues who have a healthy respect for each other rather than BFFs. I don't begrudge that take, but the post-crisis kid in me prefers them having a more professional relationship. It's like if you had two podcasters that have different opinions on certain important subjects, but still like each other and respect what each other does. Hmm. If I don't get to say it before the actual day, a Merry Christmas to you, M and Mrs. Quarterbin. Podcasting's Michael Bailey. Thank you, Michael. Hope you and all of the Baileys, be they of two legs or four legs, had wonderful, enjoyable holiday seasons. Vic and Phoenix said he enjoyed my exasperation at the virus plotline. Thanks for the laugh, Professor. Ranger Gord told us not to worry. It's just the bat flu. Social media love for last episode came from Lizanne Oswald, who has a YouTube channel. Both of our co-listeners of the year, Sir Luke and Sir Martin. Clinton from the Days of High Adventure. The Lady Laurel from the Hunters podcast, Mark Radulich, Chris Lydon7, The Sutherlands from Trekker Talk, Kirk Spencer, Karen from Between the Pages, James Williams from Karen, Dave's Comics Heroes blog, Sir Manuel Carmona, Billy D from Magazines and Monsters, W2M Network, The Telltale Mind, Pat from The Longbox Crusade, Krypton Kylie, The New Stop. Let's Team Up podcast. Chris from Professor Frenzy, which is a show. Drew from Comics for Fun and Profit. Hit the net one. Derek, Derek WC. Jim in Bruglia. 
author Stephen E. Shend, Chris Willett, and Robert Ludwig, the most sane man among us. Thank you for all that support, friends. When we come back, we'll jump into our hashtag Sci-Fi Comics Month issue. My name is Jesse, a Trekkie. A radiation wave hit and I got shot through a wormhole. And now I'm on some distant corner of the galaxy on a podcast, an index show about a strange science fiction series. Help me, please. Is there anybody out there who can hear me? I'm co-hosting with an insane Farscape fan. I'm doing everything I can. I'm just looking for a way home. What the Frell, a Farscape podcast. Available only on Council of Geeks Podcast Network. Eternity Smith, number three. Had a cover price of $1.95, meaning that when I saw this book in the cheap bins, it was at a nice and healthy 87% discount. In the interest of full disclosure, the one that I'm actually reading is the one I bought sometime in the fall of 1987 at the late-lamented Dave's Comics in Richmond, Virginia, but more about that later. The one-to-two-paragraph introduction to Eternity Smith as a character is this. Dr. Ethan Caldwell Smith is a future super-scientist who travels back from the wastelands of the 2080s to the current day of the mid-1980s to join up with his daughter Skylark to, get this, fight crime under the name Eternity Smith. And yes, those dates might not totally work, but remember, it's time travel. And one other thing you need to know is that based on their biological ages, Ethan, or Eternity Smith, is probably in his mid to early 30s, while Skylar is only about 10 years younger. Wibbly Wobbly. The cover of issue three by Eternity Smith co creator Rick Hoberg shows Eternity and Skylark engaged in a fist fight on a stage. Deep in the background, if you look close, you see a few folk in familiar superhero garb. There are two text boxes on this cover it's all out action and at the San Diego Comic Con. You know that Eternity and Skylark are related because they both have matching streaks of white in their hair. Skunk stripes, they might be called. The issue has two stories. First up, at 16 pages, is Death Mask. That's mask with a Q-U-E. This was written by Eternity Smith co-creators Dennis Malinay and Rick Hoberg, with art by Hoberg and E.R. Cruz. Malone's name is spelled M-A-L-L-O-N-E-E, but according to a note in the first issue, it is pronounced Malone. We start in a warehouse basement in San Diego. The terrorist, Emmanuel, has a federal agent named Tony hold up, and he is monologuing his evil intent to him and to us. Emmanuel is delivering cylinders of nerve gas to his Soviet friends. Remember, 1987. 
while leaving one for use right here. I suppose I might as well tell you now. It will make no difference. It may even impress you. You are aware that there is a comic book convention in progress here at the Performing Arts Center. There are many children of all ages currently enjoying a masquerade. Well, there we go, an explanation for the Q-U-E version of the word mask in the story's title. Thank you, evil villain Emmanuel. But back to the monologue. Within 15 minutes, as I am making preparations to board a Russian submarine docked below an offshore oil rig, my men will be making certain that you and all of them will die. A few floors above, on the stage of the convention's costume competition, Eternity Smith notices that the guns that a number of the, quote, performers have are quite real. He and Skylark throw punches while the stunned geeks complain about being upstaged. These things are getting crazier every year, one comments. It looks real, another responds. Back down in the basement, a young techie named Link discovers Tony tied up and manages to defuse the bomb. Eternity and Skylar walk in right through the wall, which is one of Eternity's powers, And we get caught up on the plot details. Tony explains that even though the U.S. isn't supposed to possess biochemical toxins, they still do because they know the Soviets still do also. Emmanuel took a canister with him when he left. He intends to deliver it to the Soviets. There's an offshore oil rig. Schuyler wants to take Emmanuel down personally as they have history. On the oil rig, Emmanuel wants to believe that the U.S. is putting a lid on his gas attack in San Diego because he sees no media coverage of it. But quickly, he realizes that's because the attack failed. It would seem I've underestimated Skylark again. Now, Skylark pilots a slick solo flying motorcycle hovercraft thing, which skates across magnetic fields, we're told, whatever that means. She lands on the rig and tries to flirt her way back into Emmanuel's good graces. Her arrival covers for her father. As eternity flies in secret with Link on his back. They pass through some walls, which totally weirds out Link. They appear through a floor in a room where the canister should be, but isn't. Then Skylark is going to need a distraction now, and we're going to provide it. And again, Eternity Smith is throwing punches. Emmanuel shows off the nerve gas canister to Skylark, and then they hear alarms going off. That would be my daddy pounding a few heads together. So it was a ploy, Emmanuel finally understands. You have never been interested in me. Give yourself some credit, Skylark tells him, while she kicks him off his feet. If I didn't hate you so much, I wouldn't bother to do this. Eternity is using his abilities to disappear through things to confound the crowd that he is battling, while both Smiths deliver consequences to bad guys. Link 
taps into their computers and gets the data transmitting. Doc, we can wrap this up. All we need now is Skylark. While Emmanuel is still professing his love to Skylark, she is still punching him and telling him she'd rather be kissed by a toad. Totally frustrated, he takes a gun and points it right at, not Skylark, but the bioweapon canister. Eternity finishes his half of the battle by flying in the air and shooting his futuristic laser guns at all the volatile materials on the rig, even on one of the lesser settings of this power cartridge. That will suffice to accomplish my goals. Skylark gives Emmanuel a good kick, and his gun does in fact go off, and a bullet punctures the canister. And she runs out, leaving him behind. You kill innocents, Emmanuel. I could not live with myself knowing I'd passed up the chance to put an end to that once and for all. And in a pretty cool sequence, we see Eternity fly through the wall of that room and rescue Skylark. What is cool about this is that the wall is represented by the panel borders. So he is half in one panel, half in the other. So half in one room, half in the other. It's, it's a nice visual. And then on the last page, we see that Link has rescued the hover cycle and is piloting it while Eternity carries his daughter Skylark off from the flaming oil rig. The Coast Guard is on the scene, having been clued in by Tony the Federal Agent. It turns out that salt water will neutralize the bioweapon. Now, isn't that handy? But Eternity still spends the final panel talking about the evils of bioweapons, calling them even more deadly than the atom bomb. The end. After a two-page text piece about the future of computers, circa 1987, and a one-page piece about the recent switch of publishers for this title, uh, I should talk more about that later, we get the second story, a ten-pager from the same creative team called The Threat of the Sensuous Siren, which they describe accurately, in fact, as a loving tribute to the Silver Age of comics. We start back at the San Diego Comic-Con, where the events at the masquerade have been dismissed as the most elaborately staged cosplay event ever. In appreciation, the executive committees voted to give you and your people a special Inkpot Award. Skylark spends some time browsing the back issues and finds an old comic she recognizes. We see that it's an Adam Strange issue of mystery in space. And she thought bubbles what it would have been like to... And with that, we transition from that page of the frame sequence to the eight pages of the story within the story. And I'm not going to go into a lot of detail here because there's one disturbing, disconcerting element within it that I only want to mention once. And if I go into too much detail on the story, it occurs many, many more times. So what we have is an homage to the Adam Strange stories of the Silver Age. Eternity plays the equivalent of Adam. 
while the love of his life, the Alana equivalent, is Skylar, who in the real world of the comic book is his daughter. So yeah, that happens. That aside, the story is fun and does its job as a really fun homage. And after Ethan slash Eternity slash Adam saves the day and the planet, on the bottom of the last page, Skylar's attention is brought back to the Comic-Con as Link asks her what she was daydreaming about. She says something about a different time and a different place, but concludes that when it comes right down to it, we pretty much have to live for today. There's also notation at the bottom of the page dedicating the story with respect to Gardner Fox, Carmine Infantino, Murphy Anderson, Julia Schwartz, and all the other legends who gave us the Silver Age of comics. The issue ends with two pages of text, articles by R.A. Jones and Dennis Maloney, talking about the debt that modern comics owe the creators and characters of the Silver Age. So this is a full comic of pretty interesting stuff, 24 pages of story and five pages of, on average, interesting text information. So what did I think of all this? First, let me say that I did not remember the problematic aspect of the second story. And I'm not going to mention it again. Please don't make me. So let me start with my history with Eternity Smith and similar comics and then uh, talk about the history of the title. I've made this confession before, but like everybody, when I was in college, away from home for the first time, I did a few things I'd never done before. A little experimenting. And the most bold and daring, crazy, reckless thing I did was <sighs> buy lots of sci-fi comics from small publishers and independent creators. And some of these were even, was there no end to my degradation? Black and white. I guess now I can acknowledge my own responsibility here, but frankly, I think the fault lies at the feet of Dave's Comics in Richmond, Virginia. You know them. They advertised a ton, especially in Marvel Comics. Seriously, this was a great shop, my LCS in college. And it is sadly no longer in existence. It ceased operation about four years ago after the passing of Dave himself. And that list of indie books that I bought from them would include Shatter, Mars, Justice Machine, Axel Press Button, Bolt, and Star Force 6, titles like that. But Eternity Smith was one of my favorites of that era. And it wasn't until reading this issue that I connected my appreciation for this comic with my love for one of the characters we've covered lots of here on the quarter bin, and that, of course, is Adam Strange. I didn't put two and two together until about two minutes before typing that sentence into my notes. I, mean, I don't think I like Eternity Smith because I like Adam Strange, but I think whatever it is that makes Adam Strange work for me also works for me with this title. And I did like this issue, including the Silver Age-ness of the lead character. 
how he fits in that space in between sci-fi and superhero. There was a little bit of preaching at the end of that first story, a little bit of, and the moral of the story is. Actually, there's a little bit of that in both stories. And as awkward as that can be, it does kind of have a throwback charm. And knowing is half the battle. Now let's talk about the setting for these two stories, the San Diego Comic-Con, which I've never been to and expect to never go to. That and Dragon Con both scare me. They are just too big for my delicate sensibilities. I took a lot of years off, decades off actually, between convention attending. Back in my high school and college days, I went to some conventions, quote-unquote, that were really nothing more than flea markets, cellars in hotel ballrooms. You know, I say that, and then I do wonder if there were actually creators or celebrities, you know, signings at some of those. But if there were, I really didn't care. It was all about hunting down back issues. At reasonable prices, of course. I gave up on conventions a few years before I gave up on comics, and then I picked up conventions again a few years after coming back to comics. So it was about 15 years out of comics, but more like 25 years out of conventions. And similarly to how I became a dirty, stinking podcaster, my return to comic book conventions was greatly influenced by M. There's a very good, from what I hear, anime and manga con here in central Ohio, Ohio con. And M and some college buddies would regularly go to that event. And in their excitement and hearing those stories and, and sharing what M did at those events, that really piqued my interest to return. Now, I haven't been to many since then. Heroes Con was the big one, just as much about meeting people as it was about uh, the comics and the celebrities. Although, when Luke Giaconetti texted me during Heroes Con from across the floor to say that he had located 20-cent boxes, let's just say his eventual knighthood was a fait accompli. Around here, I've enjoyed the Akron Comic Con. I think I've gone twice to that, maybe the last time three or four years ago. They had a handful of sanctioned cosplayers who would take pictures with anyone, lots of comics for sale, and a decent amount of creators. The Cleveland area has historically been a strong place for comics folk, and the Akron Con, which is just a bit outside of Cleveland, usually gets a good selection of creators for a con its size. Tony Isabella, Mike W. Barr, Trevor Von Eden, P. Craig Russell, those are just some of the ones that I remember from that con. I've also been to a Doctor Who-themed convention, Gallifrey One, and, fingers crossed and the COVID don't rise, plan to go again in 
February of 2022. But like I said, no San Diego for me. And I don't really have a lot of interest in it at this point. I am more about the comics than I am about the celebrity and the movies and the TV. But that having been said, let's look at how the con was used here. Did it work as a setting for this issue? And how were the con and con attendees treated? And in both cases, I think the answer is pretty good. I like that both stories were set there, and that the second one referenced the events of the first one. Nice little bit of of continuity there. Now, from what I read in the back matter, the switch of publishers threw off the storytelling and the schedule enough that the events of the prior issue in which we met the evil Emmanuel in San Diego, that was all supposed to be one single issue that would have been actually for sale at the time of the con. So they had to do some rearranging, and it sounded to me like the second story, the the Silver Age homage, was not intended to be in this issue. So that frame sequence of putting it at the con was maybe an adaptation to that, to, to fill out the issue. But however that happened, I think it worked pretty well and made for a fun, readable comic book. And yes, there are geeks in this issue, cosplayers and comic fans. But I thought the portrayal was more in the loving homage sense than let's mock the funny nerds. Now, generally speaking, I am not one who is uber-sensitive to that sort of stuff, so if you are, you may find the portrayals as highly insulting. I, I find that on issues like that, your mileage may vary. But again, that all worked for me. Nobody, it seemed, was portrayed as really dumb or even too socially awkward or too self-serious, too overweight. Whatever you think those comic book nerd stereotypes might be. Of course, remember that sometimes stereotypes become stereotypes because they contain grains of truth. I did mention that this comic had an earlier, a prior uh, publisher. That was five issues that were originally published by Renegade Press. And then this Hero Comics is a nine-issue run, which actually continued the story in continuity. They didn't reboot or reset with issue one. So in total... It's 14 issues of a run in terms of this story. Proud to say I own them all. Like I said, I saw this one and a few other issues of Eternity Smith in quarter bins once. But I don't think that's very common. So I don't know how well you'll do on a bin diving scavenger hunt if this issue has intrigued you. The issues are available on IndiePlanet.com on a print-on-demand basis, and they have been renumbered as 1 through 14. So this one, issue 3 of the second volume, is issue 8 on that site. Remember, it's 5 from the first volume, and then this being the third, that makes 8. After a successful crowdfunding effort, another issue was produced something like 30 years after the prior one, So issue 15 
is available at that site as well, co-starring Flair from The Champions, another Hero Comics title. And a potential issue 16 is possible pending funding. All of this info and more can be found at HeroicUniverse.com, and a link may be on the blog post for this episode, if I remember to do that. Also, I hope that Sir Manuel would be proud of my support of independent comics creators like Dennis Malinay. I mentioned books like this, Eternity Smith, Baker Street, Evangeline, whenever the topic of indie comics or small press books come up. The mid to late 80s, they were wild days in the comic book world. For example, I talked about this series for day six of Crusademus 2018, where the Long Box Crusade crew invites friends onto their show to discuss overlooked and lesser-known characters and titles. And I brought to the table the original Eternity Smith number 1 from Renegade. And in full disclosure, they did not like the book very much. For a number of years, that may have been one of the lowest-rated books in Crusademus history. On their Candy Cane rating scale out of 12, the scores from the Long Box Crusade team ranged between 6 and 7. So I understand that I may be on an island in really liking this. Certainly, I have a soft spot for the title for this issue, and I admit that nostalgia, it's strong in this one. But how much will that affect the verdict on this issue? The verdict on Eternity Smith number three Well, maybe it was nostalgia. Maybe it was the Comic-Con setting. Maybe it was the entire Adam strangeness of it all. But I enjoyed this one. A nice combination of light sci-fi, family stuff, Cold War thriller action, and super heroics. I was excited to see this in the cheap bins many years ago because it meant that eventually... I could talk about it on this show, because this is a quarter-bin deal. And that wraps up our coverage of Eternity Smith number three, bringing this hashtag Sci-Fi Comics Month special episode 178 to a close. Next time for February, we'll be in the heart of Hashtag Romance Comics Month. Get it? Heart? And in an episode that should be out on or around Valentine's Day, I will be covering, fingers crossed, with a guest, an expert on shipping. We'll be looking at The Vision and Scarlet Witch number one. This is from the 12 issue miniseries. From Marvel Comics, cover dated October 1985. If you have any questions or comments about this issue, the episode, independent sci-fi comics, or the podcast in general, feel free to contact me. Until next time, I'm Professor Allen, and I'll see you in the quarter bin.
The Quarter Bin Podcast is part of the Relatively Geeky family of podcasts. Show notes and links are available at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com, where the podcasts Uncovering the Bronze Age and Shortbox Showcase also make their home. Links to Facebook and Twitter are there as well. Feedback for the show is welcome at relativelygeeky at gmail.com. And if you like what we've got going here, please leave a review and a rating in iTunes. It'll help more people discover the show. Thanks again for listening.